This is MIT Technology Review. Will you in front of this group categorically say that the COVID-19 could not have occurred through serial passage in a laboratory? This is Rand Paul, Republican Senator from Kentucky. I do not have any accounting of what the Chinese may have done, and I'm fully in favor of any further investigation of what went on in China. And this is Anthony Fauci, America's doctor, also head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. However, I will repeat again, the NIH and NIAID categorically has not funded gain-of-function research to be conducted in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And this is a Senate hearing from last May. You're fooling with Mother Nature here. You're allowing super viruses to be created with a 15% mortality. It's very dangerous. I think it was a huge mistake to share this with China. And it's a huge mistake to allow this to continue in the United States. And we should be very careful to investigate where this virus came from. I fully agree that you should investigate where the virus came from. But again, we have not funded gain-of-function research on this virus in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, you're, no matter how many times words, you're you say words, it, there it was research. Happen. There was research done with Dr. Xi and Dr. Barak. They have collaborated on gain-of-function research where they enhanced the SARS virus to infect human airway cells, and they did it by merging a new spike protein on it. That is gain-of-function. Gain-of-function? That means experiments that increase a virus's ability to spread or cause disease. And scientists have been creating new threats because they're trying to learn where the next pandemic could come from. It was cutting-edge research being carried out in America and in Wuhan and paid for, yes, by Anthony Fauci's agency. This is Curious Coincidence. I'm Antonio Regalado. In this last episode of our podcast about the search for the origins of COVID-19, we examine the risky experiments at the heart of the lab leak debate. Scientists searching for the seeds of future pandemics, growing viruses and changing them. But if a pandemic can kill millions, should we be doing this research at all? Anthony Fauci had to go before the Senate and defend the NIH's role in all of this. This is Rowan Jacobson, a longtime science and nature journalist. Rowan wrote a story for MIT Technology Review about the experiment at the heart of the argument between Senator Paul and Dr. Fauci. That experiment had been carried out by an American scientist, Ralph Barrick. Rand Paul went after him pretty hard and accused the NIH of funding gain-of-function research in Wuhan, but also at the University of North Carolina. And Paul claimed that Ralph Barrick was engineering superviruses there. Do they fund Dr. Barrick? We do not fund... Do you fund gain- Dr. Barrick's gain-of-function research? D- Dr. Barrett does not doing gain-of-function research, and if it is... It's according to the guidelines, and it is being conducted in North Carolina. So then I reached back out to Barrick and said, well, you know, might be a good time to explain your side of things. And then he responded. Ralph Barrick is a microbiologist at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. In the world of coronaviruses, Barrick is legendary. 
for his work on antiviral drugs and vaccines, and in the gain-of-function debate, too. He's been in the middle of that for years. Barrick doesn't give a lot of interviews, but he did talk to Rowan. He's a very controlled personality, and it seems like there's a lot of stuff pent up about he wanted to explain about his research, which he, I think, felt was somewhat misunderstood. Barrick had been pulled into the debate over COVID-19's origins, and he told Rowan that he was worried about research safety in China. His opinion matters because in 2015, Barrick's lab had collaborated with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. The researchers there had been discovering new bat viruses, the dangerous kind. And Barrick, he'd been developing new ways to genetically engineer those viruses. Yeah, it's actually really interesting. You sort of get the sense of how they are both collaborators and competitors. The Wuhan Institute had found a virus in a cave in Kunming that was really closely related to the first SARS, SARS-1, which had killed like 800 people, maybe, when it broke out in 2002 through 2004. And they were actually able to culture that virus in the lab from a fecal sample, which had never happened before. And they showed in cell culture that it was able to infect human cells. So this was a major paper. It showed that there were lots of other, or at least some other coronaviruses out there that were ready to be the next SARS. So they published that. And they had also found another virus that didn't seem to be quite as closely related, but also was pretty close to SARS. And they thought that second virus wasn't as dangerous because its spike was more different from the first SARS. The spike gene. It's the business end of a coronavirus, the key that it uses to open up a cell and get inside. And the Wuhan researchers, they were finding new viruses with new spikes. But Barrick, because of research that he had done, had reasons to suspect that even though that spike was different from SARS, it might still be dangerous. So he asked Shi Li from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, he, he met her at a conference, and asked if she would provide the sequence to that virus so he could do some research on it. Shi Li is the chief bat virus researcher at the Wuhan Institute. She had the virus's genetic information, but Barak had a powerful new way of using it. And she, he said she very graciously immediately sent it to him, even before publishing her own paper on it. He had just developed the ability to use what he calls reverse genetics, which is to just take a genetic code sequence and use it to recreate a virus or a part of a virus. Reverse genetics. That's the big technology breakthrough. It means bringing a virus back to life just from its genetic code. Scientists can order, literally mail order, copies of genes. Mix and stir and kaboom, real virus in your lab. And Barrick had figured out how to do that with coronaviruses. No one had done that before him. So he used reverse genetics to take that gene sequence of the virus that she's only had found in the cave that didn't look to be that deadly and remake the spike and make a chimera, the first chimera. The chimera from mythology is a monster with a lion's head, a goat's body, and a serpent's tail. This chimera was a mixture of two bat viruses. It was a version of the original SARS virus, but with a new spike grafted into it. The whole idea was to learn if the mystery virus could be a threat to humankind. And he proved that it 
could potentially infect people, which you would not have expected from looking at it. So this was the first gain-of-function chimera that freaked everyone out and caused an article in Nature and caused a lot of scientists to object. So let me get this straight. The, the Chinese have access to these caves and they're finding the new viruses. There's one called SCH. That's the one. 014. Uh, there's another one called WIV1. Exactly. These are the new viruses they're finding, but they actually can't grow them in the lab. They couldn't. And then they figured out how to grow WIV1, which is a big breakthrough. They failed to grow SHC014. But then Barrick said, hey, give me that gene sequence. And he brought it to life as a chimera, which was, you know, a tour de force in terms of technological ability, but also for people who are worried about gain of function, it was the scariest thing yet. Scary enough that Barrick's lab created the chimera under biosafety level three security. Everyone wore respirators and Tyvek suits. The scientific publication describing all this came out in 2015 and it included a warning. Here's what the scientists said. The potential to prepare for and mitigate future outbreaks must be weighed against the risk of creating more dangerous pathogens. They even suggested that similar studies might be too risky to pursue in the future. That big paper that Barrick published, he actually purposefully withheld the key information about how to make those chimeras after consulting with the NIH and with the journal Nature, because they all agreed that this was technology that they didn't really want to proliferate, that in the wrong hands it could be really dangerous. So they took the unusual step of withholding the gene sequence and the details for how they made the chimera, but it didn't matter. Um, the WIV figured it out pretty quickly and others figured it out too. WIV took that and ran wild with it and was making lots and lots of chimeras for all these different coronaviruses that they were finding out in the caves of southern China. Right. But they did it in one way that was starkly different than how it had been done in North Carolina. What was that? That's right. They were operating at BSL-2, at least for all the cell culture work. Operating at BSL-2. Okay. So same kind of research, but being done at a lower biosafety level. So that is sort of where we start to inch towards a scenario in which something bad could happen. Is that overly risky? BSL-2, which has famously been compared to the biosafety level of a dentist's office. Although, in fact, I think, I think it's slightly higher, but the, the imagery is powerful. Yeah, basically every virologist and biosecurity expert I consulted for my MIT tech review piece was in agreement on this one that there's just no way that research should be done at BSL-2. Shi Zeng Li told Technology Review that since these viruses are not proven to sicken humans, that basic lab work doesn't require high security treatment. And remember, Dr. Fauci's institute agreed with that. They had funded it. They said it wasn't really gain of function, even though it kind of was. However, I will repeat again, the NIH and NIAID categorically has not funded gain-of-function research to be conducted in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And that's one of the problems. The same agencies that fund dangerous research are the ones overseeing its safety. The fox is watching the hen house. Do you think the NIH reviewed this research program in China that it actually funded? Do you think they reviewed it to determine whether it was gain-of-function research? We do know that there was a whole back and forth between EcoHealth Alliance and the people overseeing the project at NIH, where NIH 
said, hey, this looks like you guys are doing gain of function. You can't do that. And that EcoHealth came back and explained to them why it was going to be okay. The EcoHealth Alliance is an ambitious nonprofit based in New York that got big grants from the NIH. They also got money from the United States Agency for International Development, or USAID. EcoHealth was the one that funneled that grant money to virus hunters in Wuhan and for the Chimera experiments. After, you know, six or seven years of doing this, over a hundred new SARS-related coronaviruses, very close to SARS, some of them get into human cells in the lab. That's Peter Dajek, the head of the EcoHealth Alliance, speaking before the pandemic started. And you can't vaccinate against them with the vaccine. So these are a clear and present danger. A clear and present danger of starting a pandemic. That's why the germs are risky. But it's also why scientists want to figure them out. And all that research on coronaviruses, it did leave science better prepared to react to the COVID-19 pandemic when it finally happened. That's why we got mRNA vaccines as quickly as we did. They'd already been working on that for a while and using some other techniques that you could consider gain of function. So Barrick would argue that that whole like area of work would not have been going nearly as well if not for gain of function techniques. By the time the pandemic started, science, and Barrick's lab in particular, was well-placed to test vaccines. They had the animals, the methods, and the know-how. And even before the pandemic, they tested one antiviral drug, remdesivir, which later became the first approved treatment for COVID-19 in the U.S. It's not a great drug because it's an IV drip, and that makes it less convenient to use. But it's undeniable. The race to drugs and vaccines moved at historic speed because many of the key ideas had been worked out before the pandemic by people worried about coronaviruses. You don't get vaccines out of nothing, and that's a very tangible benefit. Gigi Granval is a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. You'll remember her from our episode on lab safety. So this debate over the origin of COVID-19 has raised again the question of research on dangerous germs, high-tech research, genetic engineering. It's being done, I guess, for the benefit of humanity, but it has these risks. So it's a, it's a classic kind of Pandora's box. You look inside Pandora's box and there's, there's smallpox, there's Ebola, there's all the nasties that are in the box. And then there's also hope. And I guess hope is to come up with vaccines and, and approaches that would protect us from pandemics. So how is that debate shaping up? I don't really understand the philosophy that we have. We should not research things that are killing people the way that they are. Humans are encroaching on the natural world. They're going into spots that they hadn't been before, where there are lots of circulating viruses. You know, people who study wildlife conservation and genetic evolution of viruses and pandemics, and they think that the frequency is going to get higher over time. So... If you believe that, then, you know, we need to, to do more to better understand this human-animal interface and to see what we can do to prevent pandemics and to quickly pounce on them once they start. And being able to quickly pounce on them once they start kind of requires us to be able to research them. I mean, it seems like a very important part of research. So I just want to know how people weigh that risk and reward trade-off. On the one hand, a reward knowledge that you could use. On the other hand, the risk, although it might be small, I mean, you have to consider that if such a pandemic went around the world, it would be an absolute disaster. So the chances are small, but the consequences would be very big. 
I think when people frame it like that, though, they don't think about like, well, what can we do to to reduce the risk, right? And that's where the conversation gets a lot more boring, but it's important. What kind of equipment are you using? What is the training of the people who are, who are doing the work? Are they vaccinated? You can monitor the research. I mean, there's like lots of things that can be added that can reduce risks and still give you the benefit of the knowledge. I think people were more concerned that other labs might look at this research and say, oh, well, we, let's apply these techniques to our favorite virus or in this, in this laboratory condition where we might not have as much resources put into biosafety, don't have as much oversight. And, you know, research is expanding all over the world, that means that there's a lot of places that are, you know, not as good at biosafety as others. But yes, it is a bit of a challenge. You know, nature has a much bigger lab than any one scientist. And so the permutations of what can be tried in nature are, you know, much more. So my concern is that we won't know what we're going to get hit with until we do. And I'd like to see more effort put on prevention. All that is the case for learning more, for knowing more. But after the break, my guest is a heretic of science, and we discuss why he thinks pandemic knowledge could be as dangerous as a nuclear warhead if it gets into the wrong hands. If you want to identify all the viruses in nature that could cause pandemics, and you share that list of viruses that you think could cause pandemics, you've just shared the blueprints for an arsenal of plagues. You can find links to our reporting in the show notes. And you can support our journalism by going to techreview.com slash subscribe. Support for this podcast comes from MIT Technology Review's Pandemic Technology Project. It's funded in part by a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation. Compete with compute. The technologies that power business are becoming smarter and faster than ever before. Join MIT Technology Review and experts from AMD, Google, Akamai, and more for our third annual Future Compute Conference, May 3rd and 4th, on the MIT campus in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Full details at futurecomputemit.com. Did COVID-19 come from a lab funded by the U.S. to find and run experiments with dangerous bat viruses? Did we create the pandemic that we were trying to prevent? That has always been the dangerous question at the heart of the lab leak theory. For my part, I don't think there's enough information to know with any kind of confidence, whether it was natural spillover, spillover that only happened due to virus hunting, or lab leak. All three of those seem plausible possibilities. You know, what matters in many ways is that we now believe that a pandemic can originate from a lab. Whether or not this one did, the fact that most people believe that it is possible has implications for what research we should be willing or unwilling to do in the laboratory. Kevin Esfeld specializes in a particular kind of threat known as an information hazard. It's the risk that knowledge itself can create new dangers. And he's been ringing alarm bells about research on pandemic biology, like those genetic engineering tools to recreate viruses. Kevin warns that they're proliferating. What if practically anyone with a PhD could start a pandemic, including on purpose? It's a scary idea, and that's why Kevin is talking about it. 
He's trying to get researchers to stop and think before they share information about the next virus they find. So thanks for the invitation. I'm Kevin Esfeldt. I'm an evolutionary engineer. I run the Sculpting Evolution Group at the MIT Media Lab, and we work on ways of advancing biotechnology safely. And does working at the Media Lab mean that part of your portfolio, part of the job description is to interact with the media, is to communicate? It's about connecting humanity to technology. That is, it's not about just pursuing technology for the sake of better technology. It's always thinking about the implications for human communities and ensuring that the technology doesn't run ahead of human interests due to factors that people might not approve of, but didn't have time to evaluate. The problem Kevin sees is that the same U.S. institution that funded the EcoHealth Alliance, USAID, has a new program, Deep Vision, that's spending $125 million to hunt for even more viruses, including coronaviruses that pose a pandemic threat. By their own account, they're trying to find tons of these viruses, sequence them, and then share that information quickly. They say it will keep us safer, but Kevin thinks that's a bad idea. He says knowledge of which virus can cause a pandemic is the real threat. So an information hazard is any information that, if disseminated, is expected to cause harm. So, for example, the most obvious is disseminating instructions for making nuclear weapons easily. If you imagine that most folks had the ability to set off a nuclear detonation, the world would be in a very different place and not in a good way. Similarly, if lots of people have the ability to ignite a new pandemic, well, just like nuclear detonations, we can't effectively defend against pandemics today. So giving many, many people the ability to ignite them is not a good idea. Because even if research like USAID's PREDICT and Deep Vision programs could perfectly prevent every natural pandemic, if the cost is creating a list of viruses rank-ordered by threat level, that are thought capable of causing pandemics, then any of tens of thousands of people, and the number will continue to grow, will be able to set off more pandemics at once than would normally hit us in a century. That just seems like a really bad bet. The published experiments on these bat viruses from the Wuhan Institute of Virology from University of North Carolina, they made chimeras. They were combining viruses, in fact, to test the potential of a given new virus. They would take a piece of it and put it on another virus as a way to test its potential as a pandemic threat. So do you, do you think that that research in itself created this hazard already, or are you talking about something that is in the future? I'm just wondering if the actual published information, whether those are already blueprints for pandemics. This is an essential point. I don't think there are any credible blueprints for pandemic animal viruses out there today. In fact, I don't think there are any for any viruses for which we lack vaccines that are out there today. But is soon as we successfully identify a pandemic-capable virus, could come straight from nature unmodified, could be assembled from different pieces of natural viruses, like the chimera experiments that were performed in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. It doesn't matter where the virus comes from. The problem is, if you identify it as being pandemic-capable and share that with the world, the genomic blueprints are already out there. The sequencing is done first. The genome is put online. And then the laboratory characterization is done. What I'm saying is we should not run those laboratory characterization experiments. What you're saying is go ahead and discover the viruses, go ahead and sequence the viruses, but do not learn how bad they are. Do not learn their pandemic potential. So 
I mean, that is a tough argument to make to scientists, right? Do not learn something. <laughs> Do not acquire the knowledge. It, it goes against human nature, honestly, to say, here's a potential threat. You know, viruses could jump from nature and cause a devastating pandemic. We know that can happen. We didn't actually need COVID to teach us, but COVID was a reminder that it could have been natural. And if it was, killed, what, 15 million people, we think. That's awful. That's a travesty. And it disproportionately affects the poorest and most vulnerable. So it was really wise of USAID to work on pandemic prevention. The problem is they didn't recognize that identifying pandemic-capable viruses created a security threat. And to be fair to them, no one actually flagged that until after Deep Vision was already announced. People had noticed that virus enhancement, gain of function, could create security risks. But no one had realized that just identifying natural pandemic-capable viruses was just as bad. Because again, it doesn't matter where the thing comes from. The problem is that identifying it as pandemic-capable creates an information hazard. When Fauci said, we did not fund gain-of-function research in Wuhan, which I think was more or less the paraphrase, do you, do you think that that was true or, or not true? I think gain-of-function is such an imprecise term that you can say it means whatever you want to say. Okay. Did, did the U.S. fund genetic engineering research on, on bat viruses in Wuhan that you consider dangerous and inappropriate? The United States indisputably funded research attempting to identify pandemic viruses that I think we should not have funded. Gotcha. Okay. And I think pretty much anyone would agree that that is the case. The major argument that's made by many people is that, well, you get this information to prepare countermeasures, to prepare a vaccine. And in fact, I think, you know, all the knowledge about coronaviruses definitely gave people a leg up in developing vaccines for SARS coronavirus too. I mean, it's sort of indisputable since at least one of them was sort of dusted off from the original SARS, one of the Chinese ones of uh, a killed virus. So I think that knowledge has been useful. So it could tend to make the counter argument. I think that's a false dichotomy. The knowledge that allowed us to make the vaccine so quickly had nothing to do with identifying pandemic-capable viruses. That knowledge came from the 99.5% of virology that poses no security risks whatsoever. And all that work should continue to be done. And furthermore, once a virus is already spreading in humans, is already a pandemic risk, is already out there, then obviously we should share everything we know about it because it's already out there, it's already hitting us. But most viruses, in fact, the overwhelming, unbelievable, hyper-astronomically vast majority of possible viruses will never infect a human. And so learning what they are just means that people can use them to inflict mass death. Now we're getting to a point that I feel acutely is the curiosity. There's a curiosity among scientists. They want to know what is the worst thing that's out there. They're interested in it. And they're going to be drawn to those caves, to those bad caves. It's this desire, a human desire to know, and it's to be drawn to these things. So it's very challenging. You must have difficulty making your case against that just human nature. I think it is human nature, but I think our current institutions incentivize scientists to do risky research because it is much more likely to be published in a glamorous journal if it's controversial, if it's seen as edgy. You said, okay, don't attach dangerous information to the genome sequences. But there's also the question of, well, what are the techniques and the tools that make that knowledge dangerous, which I guess is genome synthesis and so on. So one side is the information, but walk us through what are the techniques 
that biology has developed that can make that threat, you know, incarnate. So the reason why tens of thousands of people can assemble viruses is the publication of extremely detailed step-by-step virus assembly protocols. So these are called reverse genetics, and they're essential for performing lots of virology experiments because science is fundamentally about testing hypotheses, which often means, well, you hypothesize that this one piece of a particular viral protein is important for, say, entering a cell. So you want to make a version of the virus that changes that piece and see how that changes its ability to enter the cell. In order to do that, you need to be able to make the variant. And thanks to advances in DNA synthesis, it's often easier to make the viral genome from scratch than it is to change the version that you already have, depending on the magnitude of the change you want to make, of course. When COVID hit, there was an extremely understandable desire on the part of technologists to disseminate easy ways to make coronaviruses so that as many researchers as possible could join in the fight against COVID. The problem is that information is now available. There's a one particular paper in Nature Protocols. That journal published a paper on how to make coronaviruses. And that is what has expanded the number of people that are able to make these viruses. I think what you're saying is that if I give you a floppy disk with the genome sequence of a virus written in it as computer characters, you can go to your lab and you can actually, from that computer data, you can actually make a real virus. Is that right? Well, I'm personally a little bit rusty. Okay. But you give me time to, you know, brush up my skills, then the answer is probably yes. We've learned about this suite of research techniques, of capabilities, of actual viruses that were worked on in Wuhan, China, and also elsewhere. And for now, it still takes great expertise. You're saying anyone, but who are the types that you are worried about? Many folks are worried about state actors. I'm probably more worried about what you might call lone wolves, either folks who are mentally ill, who are captive to a malicious ideology, folks who want to bring about the apocalypse, folk who see value in nature and only see humans as destroying nature and would like to kill all humans, folks who see the ability to inflict mass death as leverage to force everyone else to adopt their way of living and viewing the world. How do you balance the fact that you've got to warn people, and yet at the same time by warning them, you also draw the attention of people who might be a little bit too curious? It's a hard balance because pointing out the risk of pandemic proliferation means that when someone does identify pandemic-capable viruses, more people will know about it. In exchange, we might delay or maybe even entirely prevent the disclosure of pandemic-capable viruses at all. So in a way, I'm increasing the stakes. You can argue about whether or not that's a good thing, but if we as a society can't agree on whether or not to give tens of thousands of people the ability to single-handedly kill millions, I think we have bigger problems. What do you think about going forward? What should research on these pandemic germs prioritize? Like, what is, if there's a new leaf is going to be turned over, what do you think it should be? You called me a heretic at the beginning. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I think our best defenses against future pandemics don't lie in biomedical research at all. The most reliable way to keep someone from dying of a pandemic virus is to keep them from being infected in the first place. And the most reliable way to 
ensure that civilization remains intact, no matter how many nasty pandemic viruses are released, is to ensure that all essential workers have access to personal protective equipment good enough that they can go out there and do their jobs, keep the food and water and power distributed without having to fear infection. And if we do that, then I think we'll be in a good position to resist pretty much any human-targeted biological threats. Do you think that it is a coincidence that the sort of genesis story of the Western world, the Garden of Eden, is an information hazard story with an apple uh, <laughs> on the tree of knowledge? Do you think that, is that a coincidence or, or, or what? That is a great question. No one has ever asked me that before. I think there is a very fundamental tension to this notion of acquiring power, because it's not just the Garden of Eden, right? You can go back to Greek mythology and say Prometheus bringing fire to humanity against the will of the gods. It crops up in creation stories over and over again. So I think there is something deep when it comes to suspicion of our ability to use power wisely. And I think that's a healthy suspicion, given the record of humanity at making wise decisions. <laughs> I think we've been given a tremendously improved world when it comes to the life of a typical person. I would rather be born now than any time in human history. But in the past, we largely lacked the power to make the world worse all at once. Technologies weren't powerful enough to bring down the system. So we have a responsibility to protect everything that our predecessors have given us by ensuring that our own ability to improve the world doesn't simultaneously bring it down. Recently, a listener of this podcast messaged me. Her father was a policeman, and she loves a good mystery. He used to tell her, kid, there are no coincidences. got to take both theories seriously, lab leak or natural spillover. We heard from a scientist who says the physical evidence points to the Huanan wet market. But we also learned that Wuhan's labs were testing the seeds of pandemics with less than reassuring safety measures. And we know that lab accidents can happen too. The virologist Robert Gallo wrote something that really stuck with me. He said, maybe finding the origin doesn't matter. Let's be honest, he said, it could be nice to know. But what would it change when we already know what to do? From a market? Let's clean up the wild animal trade anyway, just as China is doing. Lab accident? People like Gigi Gromval are working to make labs safer. But also, the public could use more transparency, and not only from China. In reporting this podcast, neither Anthony Fauci nor USAID agreed to answer any questions about their decisions. I understand that. They're in a tough spot. Because, as Kevin Elsfeld said, maybe we learned of their plans just in time to stop the next pandemic. And that would be a lucky coincidence. Curious Coincidence is a production of MIT Technology Review. It's produced as part of our Pandemic Technology Project, which is supported by a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation. The show was created by me and Jennifer Strong. The producers are Anthony Green and Lindsay Muscato, with help from Emma Silicons. The production manager is Luke Robert Mason. Our theme music was composed by Jacob Gorski, with original scoring and mixing by Garrett Lang. We're edited by Michael Riley, David Rotman, and Jennifer Strong. The executive producer of Curious Coincidence is Golda Arthur. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us. 
I'm Antonio Regalado. Thanks for listening.